0: Merci beaucoup, Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you, Andrew, and um, yes, I certainly cook with a French accent, uh, as well as speak with a French accent.
1: If you haven't worked out already from the title of today's Fabulously Delicious episode, this is part one of a two-part chat with today's guest. A food icon of mine from growing up in Australia, Gabrielle Gatte will be known by many of you. But if you haven't heard of Gabrielle before, well, then you're in for a real treat. In episode one, we will chat about life in France as a child, apprenticing at a Michelin-starred restaurant, working in some of the best restaurants in the world, he might have started his career in France, but then he's moved to Australia. And in that time, he's been able to call some of the best chefs in the world his friend. So stay tuned, grab a baguette, some cheese and wine for this, the fabulously delicious with Gabrielle Gatte. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. French food and seafood, fish in particular, you realise when you come to France, go hand in hand, as much as cheese and wine. You can be in the middle of France in the countryside and there'll be a fishmonger, or poissonaire as they call them here, at the market right next to the butchers and the fromageries. So today we're going to be getting a little fishy on Fabulously Delicious. Fabulously Delicious. I can't tell you how excited I am with my next guest. He is a French food icon in Australia and around the world, thanks to his fabulous show that followed the Tour de France every year. A successful cookbook offer, accomplished chef, and now an all-round Australian, with a French twist, of course, a little bit like me. Gabrielle Gatte, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious.
0: Merci beaucoup. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you, Andrew. And um, Yes, I certainly cook with a French accent. Uh, As well as speak with a French accent,
1: right? (laughs) Great. So you obviously then, by uh, your accent, you were born in France. So whereabouts were you born?
0: I was born on the Loire Valley. Uh, The Loire is the largest largest river in France, going from uh, practically east uh, to to west, and you know the the Loire uh, goes into the Atlantic. Uh, it's a very large river. It's the longest in France, the widest, not, not the, the biggest flow. It's uh, very hard for, uh, for tourists to go on, on the river. There's little spots, but it, there's no big uh, tourist attraction from the middle of the river. But the side of the river is wonderful because um, we have the chateaus uh, of the, the kings. We have, uh, it's called The region is called the Garden of France. Uh, fabulous for uh, for fruits, for vegetables, for goat cheese, and and great wines. Being a young child in an area like that, it must
1: have been idyllic to grow up in that area in France.
0: Yes, it is lovely. It is also a region that uh, that has got a, a reasonably mild uh, climate compared to some other regions, like if you are in the Alps or in the Massif Central or or in the north of France. Uh, we get a little bit of uh, the the Atlantic air, so it stops it from being too cold in winter. Uh, It is still cold, but not no, it's not as bad as in the mountain. And in summer, it's it's very nicely mild. You know, it gets hot, but not very, very hot. So it's it's really good for agriculture.
1: So you mentioned the chateaus before. Amongst other things, it's what the Loire is is definitely known for. So were there chateaus around where you live?
0: Yeah, yes. I, uh, there was a chateau in my town, just uh, about 300 Meters from my place, that was uh, that is now more than one thousand years old. Um, at some, so it is. Uh, <laughs> Catherine de Medici stayed there for a night with uh, with her husband, the King of France, on their way to uh, the, just, just one night. Just for one night, because remember oh. at that time they were traveling with uh, with horses and and carriage. So uh, they stayed in uh, on their way to uh, with the local noble people, and we are the Duke. Uh, we still there's still a duke uh, in you know that has a chateau in in the region, and um, so it was. Uh, he, he had good connection, and, and Catherine Catherine stayed uh, a few hundred meters from my place, uh, a few hundred uh, a few hundred years before me.
1: Right, I suppose that means that the chateaus were the Airbnb of, for the rich uh, of their time.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That was <laughs> right. the, the stop for any, you know, like you, if you were traveling from one part of France, you probably did a number of, I don't know many kilometers they could do every day. Maybe, you know, changing horse, maybe quite a, a few. But um, yeah, and they would have uh, good local wines, good local food. That, you know, the Duke always, they always had cooks, of course. Of course. And Catherine, Catherine de' Medici is important in, in uh european cuisine was was really you know important because she loved food and she brought some cooks from italy with her that loved the you know that that were good technicians but they loved the food that they saw in france you know that and the cheeses and you know the the great fish and everything so with
1: your family was there anyone in particular then that was involved in food as a career or
0: it's very common of course for french family especially in my in my town We lived, uh, everyone had a a small house uh, and everyone had a big garden because basically you grew all the vegetables for the family. It was not, you know, like it was seen as very lazy not to to grow your own vegetables. So you had a big garden surrounded uh, by fruit trees. In our case, we had lots of pear trees, we had plums, but we also had a small vineyard because it's a wine region. My father made the wine. I helped him many times. We all contributed for the pruning in winter, for the harvesting, and so we we learned to make to make wine. And around the vineyards, there was also lots of fruit trees. So that allowed us to make a, a spirit, a spirit which with all the fruits that we had, we had the we license because of we had so many trees that we were allowed to make a spirit. Using the fruits that were uh, not damaged or not eatable or, or that are starting to rot. In my family, uh, I must say also that we lived with my grandmother, and my grandmother had been the private chef in a well to do family for all her youth. And a sister was also the, doing the same occupation. A sister was working in Paris for the Rothschild family. So there, there was a, a good history of good cooks. Good home cooks, good home cooks. They were not professional chefs. The approach to cooking was very different. They cooked with what there was, of course, locally. And they would not make the same mise en place. They would cook a dish or two for, for families. They would not cook, you know, a la carte or anything. But they were really good cooks because they had lots of experience, you know, benefiting from many generations before them.
1: Would they have not been able to uh, become a professional chef at that time? Was it just that they had had families to look after themselves? So
0: you could, you could, if you had your own restaurants, and it was very much the case at that time. Okay. my grandmother was born in uh, in eighteen ninety four, and she uh, in the region, and she got a job uh, with that family that they were millers, they they grounded flour on the side of the river because. You have the electricity with the river. And uh, my grandmother started when she was like 12 or 13, and she was an assistant cook. And over the years, she became a cook. But when she was 20, she married 1914. Her husband went to the war and never came back. And the same with her sister. So suddenly, two two, uh, sisters, My, my grandmother 20, a sister 22, 23, a sister pregnant, and uh, so they went back to their employments. And they, my grandmother stayed stayed another 10 years uh, with that family. And I suppose that's where she really become, became a very fine cook as a young woman that was responsible to cook for about 20 to 25 people a day, several meals, uh, very seasonal. Cooking uh, the fish from the river, that was a really big, big thing. The pike, the pikes, the salmon... Uh, the perch, and, of course, the the seafood from the seaside, which is not very far in our case. We live more on the Atlantic side than the the centre of France.
1: And so is there any uh, particular dish that was your favourite that your
0: grandmother used to cook? Oh, well, the the great specialty of the region was uh, poached fish with, with beurre blanc sauce. The beurre blanc sauce is right in my region. The beurre blanc sauce is an extraordinary sauce. You know, made with shallots that is cooked slowly um, in in white wine and vinegar. You know, chop the sh- the shallots, cook it. We call it al- almost a confit, like you cook it until all the liquid has evaporated and it is uh, sweet and sour. And then to that you uh, you add you know in the pan a little bit of water and slowly you whisk in some cold butter until you the sauce is holding together. you, you get an emulsion, and it is a wonderful sauce for fish in particular, but also for vegetables like asparagus, which was the big specialty of the region, especially the white asparagus and the artichokes and the cauliflower. But the the great specialty was was that that beurre blanc sauce.
1: Right. And so in restaurants, it's known, um, you know, pretty much around the world that the saucier was the most important p- person in Absolutely. Uh, in, a, in a restaurant. Yeah. And you've worked in some amazing restaurants, which we'll get to soon. But in your experience, then how do you compare your, your grandmother's beurre blanc to some of the beurre you possibly had in some of the best restaurants around the world?
0: Well, not only that, but after that, uh, when, I, when I started, to be decided to become a chef I asked one of my teachers you know, what should I do he sent me to the, the best local chef who was known as the king of a beurre blanc and you know like the guy that you, you came wherever you were you, this was the guy um, that you, you would the restaurant you would come to test what a beurre blanc should taste like so I did my apprenticeship with him uh, for two, two and a half years uh, and it was uh, one Michelin star. But at that time, in the country restaurants, uh, it was not a large brigade. You know, There was three apprentices. There was a commis, And there was the chef, And, and Albert Augereau, his name was. Uh, he was a maître cuisinier de France, which means a master chef. He had done uh, lots of competition. He was a good friend with Paul Bocuse, with the Trois Gros Brothers. Um, and he was really a master of his region, an absolute master. He knew... Uh, His family had been in the region for a long time. The restaurant had a a Michelin-star restaurant for 50 years in a row. So that's a big block. And um, we we got the the fresh salmon from the local fishermen. We got the shallots that were necessary from the local garden. We got uh, the local batter of Echire, which is not uh, very far from from where you are living. Uh, We got... um, you know, the white wine to cook from, from the Loire Valley. So it was really uh regional cuisine. And, and there's a uh, uh, savoir-faire, of course, with all those sauces, you know, the little details, the uh, you no know, making the sauce thousands and thousands of times. So you, after a while, you don't miss it. You can see what is happening. And his uh, beurre blanc was very light, you know, a big emulsion. We spent, you know, like uh, five minutes... Whisking that batter to make it lighter, and with the shallots were really finely, very finely chopped, cooked very slowly for you know a couple of hours, and and uh, it was just super delicious. It was very tasty. It was just a perfect uh, accompaniment to a to a fish from the river or, or or a turbot or. Or solo, or, or something like that.
1: We are only ten minutes in, and you're already making me very hungry. <laughs> and uh, you successfully avoided that question: whose Bourbon was better, uh, oh. your grandmother's or the Michelin star chefs?
0: Well, you know, uh, my grandmother was the best Bourbong I had eaten in my youth, and after that, no, a uh, Bourbong was really uh, a beautiful homemade Bourbong. And, you know, I can really honestly say that, you know, if uh, in in Melbourne, say, if a a home cook, uh, that's where I live, uh, wants to uh, make a a sweet pastry, get some good butter, go in a good food shop, select the best raspberries, you know, make a a crème pâtissière, you know, with some fresh eggs and good milk. and then, you know, add some really good cream. That home cook can make a, a raspberry tart as good as the top restaurant of Melbourne. Yes. And so you see, those, those people, when you cook at home and they make a, a coco vin or a hare or a beurre blanc sauce, it was just, just amazing. You know, like you just, you can't think at the time of something better Albert Augerau's Beurre Blanc was really, really good. Uh, even Paul Bocuse that I got to know later on, uh, you know, like about 45 years ago, he said, Gabriel, what, what was Albert's secret? You know, he asked me. And they knew each other well. And I said, you know, it was, it was the local Charlotte, It was the local batter. And, and you know, the, his whisk movement, you know, that 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 was just incorporating, putting some hair that emul- emulsion so it was not too heavy. And it was just brilliant. And that serving it in a warm sauce boat and, uh, you know, making sure that the fish is not boiling hot, never serving it on something too hot, the plate not too hot. It's all of that that, that in the top restaurant makes a difference.
1: When you went to uh, this restaurant as an apprentice, yes. what was the first role that they got you doing? I've got, I can picture in my head that you might be there washing dishes or peeling potatoes or something along those lines. What was the first role that you were doing?
0: Uh, actually, the very first job I did uh, that morning of fourth uh, of October nineteen seventy one was peeling potatoes, and uh, because at that time. Uh, you know, there's a generation thing. But at that time, with every portion of fish you serve, you serve the pomme anglaise. Pommes anglaise. So you had some uh, bench potatoes and you, you peel them. And it really showed me how to peel a, a potato quickly. There's there's a, certainly a, a choreography of movement even to peel potatoes. And then after that, he was next to me. And then he was turning the, the pomme anglaise himself, that chef. I was lucky. He was already 57 when I... You know, so it's lucky to work with a chef of that age because at that age, you know, you're really, really good cook when, you know, regional cook. A uh, younger chef can be good cook, cook, good cook, but with lots of younger chefs, they can be brilliant, they can be very creative, but there is lots of a hit and miss thing. And they want to jump from something to another. They never, you know, it takes them a while to really go into depth, into stay still for a while, continue to learn to perfect that dish. You know, uh, when a chef has been of this age, you know, his his father was a chef. His grandfather was a chef. His grandfather, I think it was his grandfather, worked in the brigade with Escoffier. So you can imagine the intelligence of, uh, you know, of of that. Suddenly you share with your your son, your grandson and, and so on.
1: What was work life like in a restaurant then? I mean, especially in France, because we have this romantic notion of restaurants when it comes to France and bistros and the tradition, but actually working in a restaurant, what was that like?
0: Well, it was hot. <laughs> it was very hot.
1: No air conditioning?
0: Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> but uh, during my at least there was windows because in the country... You know, you had a really magnificent building and you had the kitchen on the side. In my second job in Paris, it was on the ground. But the common thing between my apprenticeship and the second job is that the kitchen was still with charcoal. So in the morning, we had to get up early because in my first restaurant, it was also a a small hotel, a charming hotel where people would spend the night in the country. You have to... So at about seven o'clock in the morning, you had to go and get some charcoal in the back of the the garden, the building, bring it and put it in the tremi, you know, the, the the place where you put the charcoal and get the the not the fire going and then uh, so the days were very long because it was really like from seven in the morning until eleven, eleven thirty at night, sometimes a bit earlier in winter, but in summer, people ate later. A little break in the afternoon, if you were lucky, but there usually was a chef that was staying, and if you had done something silly, like a, a mistake, usually were the ones staying in the afternoon. Uh, and in the afternoon, you made things like biscuits, like the uh, tuiles aux amandes. You made uh, some more ice cream. Sometimes you clean the, the the copper pans. You know, you made a paste and cleaned that. Uh, but in terms of preparation, it was a very different time. You never. Uh, got anything portion you got the fish with the guts you got the f- the f- the feathers the pheasants with the feathers in winter like if it like in winter um, in in France uh you got uh the hare the wild rabbit uh the pheasants the partridge with the feathers and that was an enormous job even at christmas we got the turkeys with the feathers so you had to to do that. Not only that, you you made your all your own pastry, so puff pastry, sweet pastry, choux pastry. You made your own ice cream. Everybody, every top restaurant had already a, a Carpigiani ice cream machine, and you made, um, you know, you always made a vanilla ice cream. You always made some sorbets. Uh, in, in the region where I was, we made the most extraordinary fruit sorbets from the local gardens with fresh raspberries, with fresh strawberries, so we would make a syrup. We made champagne sorbet with a, a Italian meringue. So the mise en place was enormous, enormous. You know, the pâtés and the terrines and things like that. So basically, the the hours were, you know, like whatever, 16 hours, very common in summer, uh, there was a season. People were on holiday. So we worked as apprentices. We worked seven days a week for three months. Maybe in the middle of it, one would have a day off because something happened and whatever, um, because it was a quiet day or there was whatever. Uh, but apart from that, you, you work really hard. One day off a week. Uh, I used to go to work each uh, hiking because there was no direct transport, you know, and that was once a week. I slept in the attic. We were locked at the weekend because as young fellows, you wanted to go out and your boss, you wanted you to keep fresh for the next day. <laughs> so it was different. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't die.
1: <laughs> you went to London at one stage and actually worked in a five-star hotel restaurant.
0: It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I worked, I worked for the Savoy Company. Um, So it was the Barclay Hotel. It was the newest hotel of the group. So the the Savoy Company at the time had the the Savoy Hotel, the Claridge, the Connaught, uh, and the Barclay Hotel. Uh, And it was a a very classic cuisine with big pots of stocks. There was about uh, 35 of us in the kitchen with a a, a, a boulanger, a baker, with a garde manger with several people. With uh, the Queen was a, a regular guest for for function. Um, there was a, a gourmet restaurant called Le Perroquet, which uh, uh, you know, which was a f- fabulous restaurant. And in the evenings, it was open late at night. We had Perico um, uh, Pericomo coming and playing with uh, Ray Charles. After their show, they would come, and there would be all those parties. You suddenly you had a function. You. You had 20 boxes, you know, of caviar going, you know, and you made all those toasts, you know, the, the smoked salmon. That was the luxury of the time, of course. Um, and then, um, so it was really, it was not such a refined cooking as what I, I had done in my apprenticeship and my second restaurant in Paris, which was a seafood restaurant. But it was, it was the first time I was working in a big brigade and it was refined, but it was you know like the numbers were bigger, were bigger. Uh, where in France it was more like uh, really à la carte, uh, very soigné, very uh, you know the details. There it was you know very good, but uh, with la- a large number of chefs working on at everything.
1: And so, how was your English then when you went to France? Where did you learn English?
0: I had done English at school until I was six, until I was sixteen. And when I, uh, I when I, I did my exam to become a chef to pass, I had taken the option English, because it, you got better notes. It was the beginning where uh, at the time at the time the chefs uh, like Paul Bocuse, like uh, Michel Gerard, like the top chefs of that time, they were starting to travel a lot, and it was and also remember Escoffier was in London like uh, you know 100 years before whatever. Um, and so it was really uh, understood that it was a bonus for uh, a chef to learn uh, foreign languages. So I, I, I studied a bit more English during my apprenticeship just for the sake of uh, of keeping it. Also during my apprenticeship, there was lots of English uh, on the Loire Valley. The English uh, tourists really love the Loire Valley because historically, we shared a king um, and, and all of that. So they would come in in pilgrimage they would stay in that country hotel, have the most amazing meal of their life for half the price of what they could eat in England at that time, because the life was expensive in England, and in France, country France was not. So it for them it was like like heaven
1: i mean it's still the same today i, I you know travel around the french countryside myself yeah and am amazed that you can stop in places and have a, a four co- or three course lunch that ends up being a five course lunch because they throw in yeah. a, an amuse bouche and something before dessert yeah. and um and it can cost 25 30 euro and it will be amazing and you can't do that in Australia.
0: No, it's, a, it's the price of a bad lunch, a, a bad man course for lunch with a, a, a glass of ordinary wine.
1: Yes, 25 yes. euros, yeah. <laughs> I know. Back in Paris, you worked for, and I've, I, I want to get his name correct, is it Alain yes. uh, Cendérins?
0: Cendérins, Yes, Alain he yeah.
1: had a three-star Michelin restaurant that yes. you worked at yeah. in Paris. What was that experience to work in a three-star Michelin restaurant?
0: Um, he was thirty-seven when I worked with him. Just co- so you can see the talent there, he had uh, he had uh, had a, a great training, and he was extremely talented, and he was a thinker. It was that generation where you stop just cooking the same dish. And you're really starting to, to be creative. And he was passionate about uh, all cookbooks and history and cultures. And those chefs, the general chef, they started to visit Japan. They visited Asia. And then suddenly they came back with some, some ideas, uh, keeping still a, a cuisine that was really French at the core, but with certainly a, a lighter presentation, a better use of vegetables. He was the first one to use a, a steamer to, to steam vegetables, a dry steamer where you put, you know, and, you know, so the technology was really coming to the forefront. Um, and his dishes were were just amazing. Uh, very small restaurant next to the Musée Rodin. At the time, we, we used to serve like... A, 35, 40 people. Um, you know, not a very big kitchen, uh, but there was two levels of kitchen and everything was uh, was was interesting and he was an, an interesting communicator. Uh you know, he he was a thinker that was able to share with people uh what he was doing. He didn't really spend much time cooking as such, but he was in the kitchen. But he was telling us a little bit like a musician telling to uh, the first violin, listen, put a little bit more you know, uh, emotion into that. So, you know, I want this like that. And 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 his role was really to, and that's the role of the chef. It's the chef, the cuisine is, is like an orchestra. A, a chef that is in a cuisine that is cooking at the stove, a top chef, it's a bit of a waste. Really, you need to train the people to, to make sure that everything is coming together. And then at the end, of course, you look, you touch, you taste, and make sure that it's perfect. But you need a team. You can't do it on your own. You need a team in the kitchen.
1: And it's said that he was the modern creator of food and wine pairings. What does that mean? We associate that you you always had good wine in France and good food. Yes. So you would assume that they would just always be paired together. So what did he do to become this modern creator of food and wine
0: pairings? Well, to start with, he had a really good connection. He worked with uh, someone called Jacques Puiset in the Loire Valley that was uh, a professor. Uh, that written uh, books on taste and and you know like he really took it as a scientific approach and so uh, they spent a lot of time together he was also he had the knack uh, to get some good stuff so he had a, a good uh, several good sommelier and then at that time you also had all those new wine makers doing about uh, you know organic and about uh, dynamic and people creating wines that, uh, oh, you know, suddenly that were so uh, transparent, you know, pure. Um, and and they stopped thinking that, uh, you know, with cheese, you have red wine, you have red wine and with, uh, or port and with, with fish, you have, uh, you know, a white wine. And with that fish, you get just that white wine and nothing else. And they put a lot more dimension. So really, they studied uh, the nuances of the wine, the nuances of the dish, and sometimes they just wanted to bring something, you know, a marriage of the day sometimes, because the chef had used a bit of tarragon with that fish rather than, than just, uh, you know, uh, parsley. So suddenly the wine asked to change. They might have something that, that will work well. And it's a science, of course, it's experience. You need to drink a fair bit. You need to have a good memory of flavor, and and Alain Senderens was really uh, fabulous. And uh, after the restaurant uh, where where I worked was uh, next to the Musée Rodin. After that, he he moved to La Madeleine, to Luca Carton restaurant, which was a, a restaurant in which he had worked like thirty years earlier, or something like that. And that he had the space to, um, you know, to he had the bar on the first floor where he could have a, a club, you know. Serving the most exquisite wines and pairing, and uh, and, and uh, you know, in Paris, luckily in Paris, you see there's such a market. There's you know, there's the money. People people will be happy, and people order some amazing bottles of wine. So you have got to to make sure that if if they order an amazing bottle of wine, you have got an amazing dish.
1: I learned my lesson at Tetsuya's in Sydney. I had the food and wine pairing there and unfortunately it was the first time I'd ever done that. I was only a young'un. I finished every glass of wine.
0: Yeah. So
1: (laughs) when you have um, eight or nine courses I think it was and there's a glass for every course um, (laughs) let's just say I don't remember much of the evening which is a terrible shame because it's one of the most amazing meals that I possibly had in my life.
0: Yes of course. Now you know what I tend to agree with you, there's a point here. To me, some of the chefs, uh, the modern chefs, uh, who are uh, so talented, uh, you know, like Paul Bocuse was was very clever. You know, the modern chef sometimes, you know, say, oh, he's classic and things like that. He was very clever. And he used to, I uh, remember, I got to know him well, he used to say, look, at this plate is stupid. The, the fork that cannot hold on the side, you cannot get the, the bottom of the plate. You know, it's very, very hard to reach the food. And uh, you know, like when you are served so many courses you you can't remember the first one and and it's just so many flavors in each courses. I think it's a mistake myself for any restaurant to serve more than say six courses uh you know to, uh, you will see the people as you age you you it's far too much it's just first you quite easily to become unwell towards the end of the meal, because it's just an overload. In
1: 1977, you moved to Australia. There's a reason why you moved to Australia. What would that be?
0: Well, I met Angie, uh, my wife, in, in Paris. Uh, when I was working with, uh, at the time, I was working with Alain Sanderens. Just, just before Alain Sanderens, I did my national service in in the NATO forces in, in West Germany. And then after that, I uh, came and I placed an ad at uh, the uni at the Sorbonne uh, saying, you know, looking for, uh, to share an apartment with English-speaking people. And um, I, I didn't get uh, an English-speaking person, yes, I did, but it was a French French woman who knew who was a friend of, of NG Mawaf. So we met through that. Uh, we met in 1976, and uh, she was uh, in Paris. She was au pair, although she was 28. She was already a qualified uh, language teacher. But uh, being Australian in Paris, there was no uh, working permit. So she had to be au pair in order to stay in Paris. And she was studying at La Sorbonne at the time, some, doing some further studies. So um, we we fell in love. We, we went to work in, London, in, in England for a short while. I got a job with uh, Raymond Blanc as his sous-chef, but the money was bad. Angie uh, could not get a job as a language teacher in England, so we decided to to come to Australia in in 1970, where both of us could work.
1: So when you arrived in Australia, did you go into a kitchen then? So you were working in restaurants in Australia?
0: I needed to get a job because I, I didn't have any money uh so I, I just took the first job i got uh, we moved to adelaide uh, ng worked in adelaide as a teacher before uh, we moved to adelaide i got a second job in a in a restaurant i didn't know if it was good or bad and it was pretty bad <laughs> well because you know after working in three stars restaurant <laughs>
1: oh i can imagine yes
0: and remember it's the 70s so it was not sophisticated yes. uh uh, for some people, Buddha thought it was okay, but it was it was a bit of a shock. So I stayed there for uh, for about six weeks, and then I, I got a job in a French restaurant as a sous chef, and uh, I stayed there for a few months. But there was it was lovely. Uh, the chef was lovely, uh, but the second partner was not lovely, so there was dispute And I decided to freelance straight away. I uh, advertise my services for uh, cooking for private dinner parties. And little by little, and, and that was just a gamble, Angie was working. I got So I, I went to visit the press. I went to the newspapers, to the television, to the radio, saying this is what I do. Uh, I got a little bit of publicity. Uh, someone on television asked me if I would cook a dinner for her. Uh, in, that, in that dinner, Bernard King was there
1: another one of my food icons um i actually met him yeah. and uh he was a character
0: but he was okay car- you know what we got on really well um we we had a good time he was of course older than me he uh he invited me quite a number of times uh to to go on his show television show and he was the only one practically ever that would tell me Gabriel. Look at this camera when this happened, and not this one. be careful with that. Don't worry about this one at that time. Nobody told you anything. you know you did it, and you did it wrong. You were not looking at the Bernard understood all of that. he was a performer he was he wanted to do things well, he liked my cooking, you know, I think he liked. He also liked me as a young fellow. Well, yes, you know, it <laughs> and, didn't help that he was a
1: handsome French lad.
0: <laughs> and, no, we had lots. Of, you know, it, basically, he was good company, and he was encouraging. Uh, so, I, little by little, I established myself cooking for private dinner parties, and I could really do well. So, uh, each time I would do a dinner, people would ask for the recipes. Uh, then I started a few classes. Uh, people asked me to write articles for newspapers. Um, And then um, after all of that, you know, I was just starting to make a living. It was now after two, three years, I decided to publish a a cookbook.
1: Actually, that leads me to my next question, because cookbooks are a passion of mine. I have a few of yours.
0: Thank you. Merci.
1: Not an autographed copy, though. So we'll have to rectify that next time I'm in Melbourne or you're in France. What was the inspiration behind doing your first cookbook then?
0: I think I came at the right time. You know, there was a, a food revolution in Australia. Uh, I came with a background of a modern cuisine. I was young, you know. That You know, we, we forget when we are older, we didn't realize how popular we were when we are young because of our youth, because of our energy. Um, I could speak about, about cooking. And um, we went to see publishers and publishers say, who are you? Uh, no, we don't know you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so we decided to publish the book ourselves. I was lucky; one of my clients, uh, for whom I was cooking dinner parties, was a big printer in Adelaide, and he said, "Listen, we print your book. We have got the setup to uh, to put your book together, uh, and uh, we will do it for you." And you know, at that time, it was you know we we had meetings every several days and looked at everything and then we published the book and they say, he said if after uh, six months you have not reimbursed the first printing then we will take over the stock and we will we will find ways to sell it through our network and the book was successful it was not you know uh, the first book I think we sold seven and a half thousand copies which was not too bad but it it we broke heaven and that really, gave me a national uh, reputation, because from Adelaide, Adelaide was a good place, but it was not the center of Australia. You had to be really ideally in in Sydney, because the press was mostly in Sydney, or Melbourne. Melbourne was good too. My wife, Angie, is from Melbourne. After uh, uh, In 1981, we decided just after the publishing of the book to move to Melbourne, uh, to just get going in a different, uh, you know, dimension. And also because we had a child by that time, uh, Sebastian was born in Adelaide and we wanted to have grandparents, you know, uh, not far.
1: You mentioned Bernard before and getting into TV. And of course, so many Australians will know you from uh, TV. What was the first TV show on your own then that you did?
0: Well, the very first one was actually a pretty good show. It was an eight half an hour series for the uh, ABC called The Good Food Show. And it was a, a lifestyle show, if you want, really like practically the first of its type. Uh, it was in the in the eighties. It was 1986, um, and uh, it was uh, filmed on, on film, not on video. Uh, produced by the CSIRO, and I went around Australia to um, to talk about fresh vegetables, to talk about the importance of. of uh, of eating fish and a wide variety of food and making good bread and things like that. And and it was shown in the evening, so a little bit of a prime time. First it was shown on Saturday morning and then the ABC showed it, you know, like at five o'clock on the Sunday, which was not too bad because at that time networks didn't believe that you could have a television show prime time. They, uh, later on, you know, like later on, I did the, the show called What's Cooking, which was a serious, like a, we used to record eighteen recipes a week uh that I would prepare in one day. The shoot was in one day um and and you know at that time, you know we worked a lot. I had built a kitchen in the studio. They didn't believe in having a test kitchen. they thought you you could do everything on the bench and I said, no, you can't you, we're doing lots of cooking there um and then at the time, I said, you know you know it's it's popular during the day. Our ratings were uh almost as good as the midday show with Ray Martin and, and 100 people working on the show with, with an orchestra. Uh, you know, why, can you give us a spot in the evening? And at the time, hey, who do you think you are? You know, you know, cooking will never be on primetime television. That's what I was told. Uh, and of course, you know, you can. Uh, you were involved with MasterChef, and you know how popular oui. how popular those shows are.
1: How fabulous and wonderful is Gabriel Gatte? What an amazing experience hearing him tell us about his history and uh, how he became a chef and moved to Australia. For those of us in Australia, we know and love him and he's been in our hearts and our stomachs for many years. But for those not that don't know him, well, now you know why we love him so much. Next week, we're going to explore more about his television career and his favourite French subject, which is seafood, of course. If you like Fabulously Delicious, then please do follow me wherever you follow podcasts. I'm Andrew Pryor and my motto in life is... Whatever you do, you should do it fabulously. So, join me every week for more Fabulously Delicious. And I'll see you next week for part two of Fabulously Delicious with my wonderful guest, Gabrielle Gatte. A and bon app!
0: Hi, I'm Emma.
1: And I'm Joe, And, and we're, we're the Professional, professional Book, book
0: nerds. nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe.